Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer Craig Burbage. First of all, this is a real surprise. CDs are making a comeback. Yes, you heard that right. CDs are making a comeback. Now, you wouldn't think so, given the fact that CD sales are actually down 21% this year. But the latest Taylor Swift album called Lover has sold 468,000 so far. And then Tool's new record, Fear Inoculum, did 87,000 at $45. It's a custom box. And that caused the record label to boost the price to $59 and then to $65. And they sold out 100,000 more. Now these are actually going on Amazon for anywhere between $155 and $205, if you can imagine that. This success has made retailers reconsider what they were doing at CD space. And what they're doing, for the most part, is converting everything over to vinyl. And vinyl is still selling really well. But it looks like CDs are making a bit of a comeback, at least for certain artists, So now many retailers like Best Buy are beginning to think, hmm, maybe we should keep some of that space for CDs, given the fact that the whole industry is sort of afraid of doing to CDs what they did to VHS, meaning that they stopped selling VHS way too soon, and they only realize this later on. Now, it turns out that wherever vinyl sales are doing well, So are CD sales. So if an artist comes out with very big vinyl sales, they'll sell more CDs. So now record labels are changing their strategy. Instead of going for low-priced CDs in the $7.95 range, now they're going back to $19.95. And in fact, they're getting that money. So who's buying these things? Well, fans are, for the most part, and collectors. That being said, it doesn't matter who's buying them. They're being bought. Another thing that's really driving this is the upcoming Adele release. Yeah, she's been working on an album for a long time, and she's been putting off the release. But retailers think that she can sell a million CDs the first week out. So that just goes to show you there is an appetite for CDs still. It's not with everybody. It's not with the average music fan because they're happy with what they're getting from streaming but there are those people that are still buying those round plastic discs. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, we all have home studios, and in that home studio, I guarantee you probably have one of those really inexpensive USB hubs. You know, the little strips that has nine USB ports or seven or whatever. The problem is, these cheap USB hubs can actually be doing your system a lot of harm. Now, has any of these happened to you? You have drives that are dismounting and then remounting all by themselves. 
How about your drives have very low transfer speed? Does your computer have trouble booting up? So in other words, it quits mid-boot. Have you ever had any drives die? Well, drives die because of various reasons, but if this seems to keep on happening to you, where you have a drive that's seemingly good and brand new and all of a sudden is dying, replace it and you have another one from another manufacturer, perhaps it dies as well. It could be your inexpensive USB port, especially USB 3. USB 3 is great because it has very high transfer speeds and they're all over the place, so it's very easy to buy inexpensive USB 3 external drives and USB 3 peripherals. You especially see this now with USB 3 computer interfaces. But the real problem is if you get one of these cheap USB hubs, they're cheap for a reason. The problem is that there's only one communications controller chip for all of the ports on the hub. So the big problem here is if you have multiple drives on this particular hub and they're working at the same time, there's one controller that's trying to control both of them. And if you have several drives beyond that, all of a sudden all these drives cannot maintain communications with your computer. So that's why they're dismounting and then remounting all by themselves. Now the real problem in that is you'll find that sometimes they will dismount while they're spinning, while they're actually reading or writing. And that's when you start to get problems with them dying. So what you really want is a hub that has a controller for each port. And that way you don't have to worry. Now, it's okay to have these really inexpensive USB hubs for peripherals like keyboards and memory sticks and accessories, but it's bad when you start to put drives on them. And it's especially bad if you have a recording interface, a computer audio interface, along with the drive. They're both trying to transfer a lot of information at the same time. And what will end up happening is sooner or later, you're going to have a problem. Now, the way around this is to get a better powered hub. So in other words, it's a hub that has a port for external power. So the power is not coming from the computer. It's coming from your main AC power source. And in turn, that's allowing you to power your accessories. It's allowing you to power your drives if they need. And hopefully there's multiple controllers. So you're not going to have a dismount problem as well. Now, an easier way to do that is just make sure that your hard drives are all connected to your computer's ports. So your audio interface and your critical external drives, just make sure they're connected to the computer. Make sure the computer is plugged in if it's a laptop and you shouldn't have any problems. But if you need more ports, you're gonna have to have a hub. The best thing is spend a little bit of money and it doesn't have to be all that much, it's less than $100 and get a powered hub. My guest today is Craig Burbage, who gained multi-platinum status having worked with hundreds of artists, including Barry White, Steve Perry, Natalie Cole, Take Six, Teddy Pendergrass, Vanessa Williams, Brian McKnight, Kirk Franklin, and many more. Craig was also one of the first American engineers to take his talents to Asia, working with the Taiwanese superstar David Tao. He was also one of the first to utilize remote audio connections for mixing his Asian clients while still in Los Angeles. During the interview, we spoke about mixing while recording, getting engineering work through session musicians, owning the RLA studio complex, 
working with Chinese clients, and much more. I spoke with Craig via Skype from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me how you got started in the business. Moved down here from Idaho, chasing a girlfriend, like all audio engineers. <laughs> and we, uh, I uh, met and got a job with Seals and Crofts. You remember them? Yeah. Okay. Um, they met me in Idaho at uh, Idaho State University, and they really liked me. And they said, if you ever came to L.A., you got a job, and they were good to their word. So I started working at... Uh, Don Breaker Music Company for Dude McLean. And because they were Baha'is, they met all these other Baha'i musicians like John Barnes, John Barnes Sr. And through John, I ended up meeting, um, I met uh, Barney Perkins. I don't know if you remember Barney Perkins. I do. And he was kind of my mentor. He took me under his wings and beat me up and you know, tortured me like every good engineer would. And, uh, you know, just learned a phenomenal amount about that. But mostly you learn from musicians and working around John Barnes, James Gadsden, all those guys. It was just, you know, if, if, if you have the aptitude for being an audio engineer, you just, you know, you're like a sponge. You just absorb it and you learn from them more than you learn from any other audio engineer. Barney, I think, taught discipline he taught uh, purpose um barney was also i mean just very intuitive and wise about mixing and made some of the greatest records ever for motown yeah. he's one of the original motown engineers and um you know one of the things i remember clearly was he sent me on a project to go work with a uh Bobby Womack. You remember Bobby oh, Womack? Of course, yeah. At Bobby's studio, and I go, I don't, I don't want to nix on that board. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, I go, well, it's a Tascam board. I want to mix on an SSL. I want to mix on... And he goes, you know, you're an audio engineer, right? I'm going, yeah. He goes, do you know what your job is? I'm going, yeah, it's to make things sound great, make wonderful. And he goes, your job is to make whatever console you're on sound better than anybody else ever made that console sound. He said, so you go there and you mix the record in that Tascam and make it the best record ever mixed on a Tascam console. And it kind of ingrained in my brain that, you know, um, you never you never know where inspiration is going to come from and you never know what's going to actually help create a hit. Maybe it's the graininess and the dirt and everything that made that song stand out amongst all the others. So it's like, you know, Barney helped me through learning a process of mixing. And he always said, you're always mixing. And I go, what do you mean you're always mixing? He goes, you're mixing from the kick drum on. The minute the tape starts recording, you're mixing. Mm. You know, so it was just great advice. So, you were working in their studio then in San Fernando. Well, actually, I was working at that studio, soldering wires, and, uh, and that's where you learn signal flow is by you know, wiring a studio. Yeah, and uh, that was with Louis Sheldon and and uh, all those guys, and that was a learning experience because. 
you know, you actually learn signal flow, which is a part of being an audio engineer. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, we, we did some of the early Shaka Khan records there, and, uh, you know, that's where I met a lot of other great musicians, too. I remember being there once, and I liked it. It was pretty cool. It sounded really good, as I remember. Yeah, I think they were the ones, the first ones to have a Helios console. Helios? Yeah. And the Helios was kind of the predecessor to the SSL. And uh, so, yeah, it was like, I got to learn on the Helios, and then got introduced to the other consoles like Nice and stuff like that. But uh, um that was a great studio, except it was at the time what they called out of town. Yeah, yeah, it was far. Well, it seemed far. It's not now, but it seemed far then. I know how times change. You probably had that same problem in Glendale, right, with Air LA. Ah, yeah, we're uh, me, Encore, and a few other studios. We were considered the Pacific Rim. I don't know why they called it the Pacific Rim. <laughs> But um, yeah, it was it was kind of hard to get people out of the bubble and, and the Hollywood bubble to come out and see the studios. But uh, I didn't pick the location for Air LA. Yamaha picked the yeah. location for Air LA. But yeah, it was a pretty amazing studio too. I worked there a lot in Biff's days when it was front page. Ah, right. So. Yeah. I was kind of based out of there for a few years. So you're one of the few audio engineers that actually knows how a uh, Euphonics works. Well, both of them, the System 5 and the, I guess, the CS3000. Yeah, the original. Yeah. But that being said, he had the same problem, getting people to go to Glendale, even though it was only, what is it, 15 minutes from Hollywood. It's not far. If you don't have traffic anyway, it seems farther than it is. Well... Because I think in the original days, the original studio days, like when I first started engineering, I remember you didn't do just one session a day. Yeah. You know, you would do like two or three sessions a day. You know, sometimes in the morning you go do a tracking session at one studio, like Wally Hyder, or, and then you go to RCA and do vocal overdubs, and then you go to, I don't know all these other studios, but you're always going to like six or seven different studios and they're all within a certain area. So going to Glendale didn't always fall in, in line with a lot of engineers uh, um, planning and everything, but that changed when projects started being done long-term at different studios. Unfortunately, about that time is when everybody started recording at their own studios at their home, yeah. you know, with ADATs and stuff. But, uh, yeah, different world, different time. Well, let's go back a little bit. So, after Seals and Crofts, then what? Oh, well. Um, well, then you're kind of into it. You're kind of like, you know, trying to find work and working. People hear your name and you start working with different people and associations. And uh, uh, after that, I got a lot of recommendations from session musicians themselves. You know, they... If you do a good job for such a musician, they talk about different engineers. They call you into different work. So you get exposure to a lot of other different artists and, and talent. And uh, like I said, we did the routine. We did different projects all around town. And then I was working with uh, John Gass off and on, you know. Yeah. Um, 
and through John Gass, I met uh, L.A. Reed and Babyface. And John was their main engineer, but whenever John was mixing on something, they'd bring me and I'd do vocals and started doing mixing for them and got a bunch of hits. And once you have hits like that, you start working. I mean, really working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So we worked a lot at the studio on Beverly Boulevard. I don't even remember the name of it now. Um, one of the original knees in the Harrison. Yeah. So and that was an experience for a while. And then L.A. and Babyface moved to Atlanta, and I stayed here. Well, you had hits already, so I'm sure you, the work kept on coming because you know, you'd reached a certain level. Yeah, and about that time I took on Air LA, and that was kind of a, a different experience. All all, a, the greatest experience in the world. You get to, from there I got to meet great engineers. I mean, they came to the studio. Yeah. You know, we got to work with them. Rob Shirelli, uh, Manny Marroquin, yeah. um, Dave Pensato lived in Studio B, you know, for like three or four years. It's great having him around. And, it, it was that was just a real, real creative kind of like environment where you had all these different kind of artists coming to the studio and collaborating and meeting other people. It's just like a great adventure, something I think's missing right now. What brought RLA on? That's a big undertaking to suddenly be a studio owner where before you're kind of free. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was kind of an accident, actually. Uh, it was, I was at the time, I got introduced to uh, Yamaha R&D through Barney. Barney was working there. We did uh, Anita Baker and a bunch of other records at that studio. So I was familiar with the studio. Um, my studio manager was Norm DeLugach, um, great technician. And the studio itself was built, designed and built by Yamaha R&D. And it was built to kind of attract session musicians to try Yamaha instruments, musical instruments. So at some point, at one point, they had uh, assistant engineers from Japan there being trained because they wanted to learn how the Americans got their sound. Mm. Okay. And so one, one engineer that was there the longest and really, really good engineer didn't want to go back to Japan. And this is, you know, it was kind of mind boggling at the time. He didn't want to go back to Japan. So the, the 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 president of Nippon Gaoki, which is Yamaha at the time, came to the States to, can I say the guy, engineer's name? Sure. Stan Kadayama. Ah. And Stan um, was getting famous doing rock and roll, yeah. you know, heavy metal, stuff like that. So the president of Nippon Gaoki came there and literally demanded that he move back to Japan. They were going to give him an apartment in Tokyo next to the studios in, uh, in Japan. And he wouldn't do it. He stayed here, married, uh, got married, stayed here. And Yamaha just said, forget it. 
get rid of the studio. So I said, okay, I'll buy it. I didn't know how I was going to buy it, but, you know, I figured that, you know, knowing the people that I knew at that time that we get, and we did, we bought it, made it air LA. So it was actually one of the few studios in the world. It was actually built from the ground up to be a studio. You know, it was built like a, a bunker, yeah. you know, it was like, and it was just, uh, you know, with the Yamaha pianos and everything, it was just a great experience. So that's how it ended up coming about. Did all the gear go with it? Yes. It was basically walked in and you'd never buy a pre-existing studio, except I knew every wire in that building because I'd worked there so much. Yeah. You know, so it was an easy, easy call to take over the, the building. It, it came with uh, two SSLs and we bought an Eve and put it in Studio 3 and and we just went to work making hit records for about eight years, nine years. It was a great experience. But owning the studio and running the studio is way different from just being an engineer. And I'm sure the weight of that caught up with you. Oh, absolutely. It was like, you know, um, about that time we experienced a huge dramatic shift in the music business. I mean, we were all benefiting from the sale of CDs, meaning that the catalog had, you know, been sold over and over and over again as CDs. So there's all kinds of cash flow in the, in the music business. But then all of a sudden, in uh, I think in 1992 or 90, we had the earthquake. Yeah. And when the earthquake hit here, um, pretty much every studio in town had like four or five months where we had no sessions at all. I mean, it was just like vacant. And your margins for recording studios back then and even now, very narrow. You have very narrow margin of profit. And if you have a couple of bad months, you'd end up being, you know, it becomes a struggle. So yeah, I was ended up doing mixes just to keep the studio business busy and keeping people employed and, uh, uh, it did become a burden after a while, so that's when Biff took it over. I know exactly what you're talking about because I owned a restaurant with Biff oh. in Los Feliz, Asia Los Feliz, and it really did well the first year. We were on television, including national television, six times. There was all sorts of celebs that would come in, and then the writer's strike hit, and we had no idea that the writer's strike would affect us that much but it did because all of a sudden it was like the spigot just turned off there were people coming in but it wasn't the same and they weren't spending as much so it was a tough time while the writer's strike was going so i understand completely how that could happen and it's the same thing in the restaurant business the margins aren't great the alcohol margins are but the food margins aren't generally speaking during that period of time, too, we, we just came off the Gulf War, first Gulf War. And when the earthquake hit, literally all the business in L.A. moved to New York for a while. Yeah. It just did. That was the best time for studios in New York. It was the, the largest expansion, expansion of recording studios in Atlanta and New York. It's never happened since, you know. But, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a different kind of time, but it's always funny how politics does affect income and uh, 
you know, what happens in the music business, both creatively, creative, creatively, sorry, and uh, financially, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. like I've been, uh, most of my income lately has been from China, but because of what's going on in China, that's kind of like disappeared for a while. I want to talk about that with you, actually. Let's talk about how you started to get clients from China, because that's, that's unusual. It, that hasn't happened to everybody. So what happened in your case? It actually started at Air LA. It, it started at Air LA because we, we were on the list. There were a list of studios that Chinese clients would book different studios, like Westlake Studio D, Record Plant, and we were on the list. They wanted to book Air LA. So we had great, we had audio engineers and artists from Taiwan and uh, Singapore and Shanghai that were signed to, uh, at the time, a company called Rock Records, which was eventually bought by uh, uh, EMI. But uh, all their artists were coming through. And a lot of the producers from Taiwan moved to the United States. So they were producing, and I met several of the producers there and, and uh, the record company managers and everything, and uh, we just became good friends. It was just, uh, and one of the artists that was signed to one of the producers that was using the studios uh, ended up, well, he was first signed as a songwriter, and when he came to L.A., the first time he came in a uh, uniform because he was a uh, LAPD officer. <laughs> okay. He graduated from UCLA and uh, he came to LA as a songwriter and a producer signed him. And um, this guy eventually became and still is a legend in Chinese music and Mandarin music. And I, oh, actually, Manny Marikin and I did his first album. And it was such a legendary album. I think it sold like the first six months, four million copies. Literally sold, not just bootlegged, sold yeah. four million copies over there. And David, David Tao became pretty much a legend over there. And then after that, it was like I could, I, I got calls to work and the studio was booked for months at a time because everybody wanted that record. Okay. Yeah. And um, then I started going over there and working with everybody. It was kind of a, a, a joy, actually, because it, I'll be the first to admit I'm not really good at rapper hip hop. It's not really my long suit. And that was kind of like where, especially in R&B music or in black music, that's kind of where the market went. And I really wasn't, I'm an R&B engineer. I'm a vocal engineer. You yeah. know, and I didn't fit in necessarily in the hip hop world, but yet over in China, and that's kind of like where they went. Everything is very melody driven. Every you know, yeah. and the production became more and more, and especially with my experience with LA and Babyface and uh, R&B in general, it was pretty much a great fit. When you went there, how was it different from from recording over here? Well, you and I have kind of gone through this whole experience of, you know, being the analog capital of the universe, 
to first seeing ADATS, to first seeing, you know, the transition between analog world and digital world, you know, and unfortunately, U.S. we did we haven't we didn't adapt as well as the Chinese did. They almost instantly went from analog to digital in a heartbeat, you know. Mm-hmm. The way they did things, they tended to automatically abandon the idea of recording studios and moved right into their bedrooms and started producing records, you know. And so it was interesting watching that transition there. Um, I mean, there still are a few good studios over there, but, you know, uh, creatively, it was just, you know, almost automatic over there we're here i think it took people a while to kind of get used to the idea that this is the way records are going to be made now like it or not you know um so it was interesting watching that and uh but like i said i fit in really well because it just was the language itself is going to pretty much lends itself to being melodically driven Mm -hmm. you know so um, it, it was it was an interesting transition. What was the gear like when you first went there? Well, the first couple times I went there, the first like five six years, worked in an SSL room. Huh. You know, a couple different SSL rooms. Of course, tape machine. First first couple times I went there was a thirty three forty eight. You know, the digital machines. Yeah. And then the third time I went there was there were no tape machines anymore is all pro tools um you know they adapted to the the digital world rather quickly over there and uh but eventually people started building their own smaller rooms so i started just working at different studios all all around taipei about 30 different studios i worked at at that time yeah wow that's a lot of studios well, it's big country. It's uh, you got to remember that uh, the Chinese market is three and a half billion people, and there are only three hundred million in the United States. So it's a big market over there. You know. Yeah. Right. Right. You know. But again, you think of Taipei kind of um, separate. Well, it is separated from mainland China. Yes. But, but you think culturally it's separated as well, so whatever music they would generate on either side would kind of stay there. But I guess that's not the case, right? The Mandarin-speaking countries, China's not the only Mandarin-speaking country. You have you know different variations of Mandarin all the way through Vietnam, Vietnam all the way down to Indonesia, all the way over to Malaysia, you know, it covers quite a vast area. And um, even like in Korea, they, they, they do listen to Mandarin style, Mandarin type of music. And China is like the most recent market. It's the biggest market, but it's the most recent market. And that really was only being, only really started maybe about 15 years ago. 20 years ago, relatively new. And the first couple of times I actually went to mainland China, it was interesting because 
the government was kind of pushing artists to be more creative. They wanted them to be more, you know, uh, intuitive because they were building up their entertainment, you know, companies, mm -hmm. the the film companies and everything. So they were kind of pushing their artists to be more creative. But it's like after so many so many decades of oppression, it's like the creative artists over there were actually kind of intimidated by being creative. They were more comfortable with rules and, and uh, being told what to do. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like you, just before the Olympics, it was like they're being told to be creative, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was kind of interesting to watch the whole process of how now they're very, they, they got up to speed. They got very creative. They started to have their own version of hip hop. Then all of a sudden, this year is like the 70th anniversary of the the country, and they kind of like stopped everything temporarily. Yeah. But they stopped everything. I mean, they just kind of like, okay, it's not it, everything has to be more towards culturally towards the celebration of the country. So there's very little pop music or and absolutely no rap or hip hop right now. Huh. As kind of an edict. You were um, mixing over here for a while, and I remember there's one project in particular I walked in and saw you do at Oasis where you were using Source Connect, I think. Yeah. So after a while, you didn't go over there. You just stayed here and did what you had to do via online then, right? Yeah. Again, they're kind of like, seem to be more adaptive towards doing things that way. They wanted the creativity of audio engineers and, and musicians here and they figured out a way to, to do it like I think well, Oasis there were a couple of sessions we did where we actually did the live tracking using Source Connect and a few others Wow, where they used the, the live musicians but the producer and the writers were over in Beijing so we did the tracking here it was like there's this time delay and everything and it's a little bit annoying but you know, they were able to get what they wanted without having to send airline tickets and uh, passports and everything to get people over there, you know, or over here. Um, haven't done that a lot lately, though. Now they're just kind of like they just send the files. Mm. And, you know, we record the drums and everything here and uh, or the horns. And, and uh, uh, but, yeah, that was an interesting time. We were talking recently about how the creativity has changed over there, and I've experienced it as well in my travels, where it used to be you'd walk down the street anywhere in the world and you would hear what would be the latest American hits would be playing, the big ones, obviously. And now that's no longer the case. You kind of rarely hear that, and instead you hear indigenous music that's influenced by what we've done in the West and you said that you saw that too, where they need less of our help because they're getting good at it now. Well, I think during that period when we were talking about the early or late 90s, early 2000s, there was, just seemed to be an international transition where, for some reason, American um, politics shouldn't enter into music, but it does. Uh, at some point, they realized that 
we're not the superheroes that they imagined us to be, you know. On the other hand, though, they still, every musician over there, uh, like, I'm amazed at times that I'll meet somebody and they'll know more about my career than I remember. Huh. I mean, it's, oh, really? Yeah, I did do that record. You know, it's kind of like, so they have an appreciation of it. Not as not not as bad as Japan did. You remember when J- Japanese artists would come over here and note for note, they'd copy like, you know, Paul Jackson Jr. or they'd copy this artist. that. But they would they would know your career. They would know what you did and they would want that kind of influence or that color or, you know, maybe not knowing that you're just the engineer. You're not the bass player. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're not the drummer just because you recorded the drums doesn't necessarily mean you know how the drummer got the feel, you know. Yeah. Um, eventually, they figured out that, hey, you're an engineer, but you got a book with phone numbers. So how can we reach this drummer? How can we reach this, you know? And you help them coordinate that. And uh, but yeah, over there it was kind of interesting. The first couple of times I went to Taipei, I think I told you this story once. The first thing you see coming from the airport when you come into Taipei was this like huge 18-story building with the Beatles, Abbey Road, painted on it. I mean, it's just like, welcome to Taipei, Beatles. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, there was huge influence over there. And you also notice that almost all the advertisement was beautiful white women in clothes and shoes and um then about the time we invaded Iraq, about that period of time, all of a sudden you notice that all those beautiful white women are being replaced with beautiful Asian women. That culturally, you notice the shift that they're kind of going, well, why do we have to glorify them when we can actually glorify what we're doing? So you see, and musically, when I first went over there, I started working in this band called Mayday. Now, Mayday... I liked what they did. I mean, it was kind of a garage band, rock and roll kind of thing, but the melodies were phenomenal. Didn't understand the language, but I knew the melodies were kind of cool. You know, they're very melody-driven songs. And turns out they became the largest rock and roll band in China. I mean, about two years ago, three years ago, sorry, time goes by too fast. Um, the birds, they sold out the bird's nest for seven nights straight Wow! in Beijing. And it's like, they're just huge, huge as far as, but you, you, from them, I, you could see how music changed and how demanding they're becoming about their entertainment. And, uh, they, I don't think they've exceeded what we do musically, creatively, but what they do, their in their income stream is basically driven by live performance. Where here in the states, we went the other route. We went the CD route. Mm-hmm. We figured, you know, entertainment was going to be at everybody's house and TV and stuff like that. So for every concert, major concert we have here in the states, over there they have like thirty. Mm. I mean. A meaning 20 to 65,000 people all the time, 
every weekend in every major city over there. So it's the music over there is basically very driven by live performance. Where here, I think we've kind of like maybe there are pockets, but I don't see our music being as much driven as much by live performance as it is over there. Has streaming influenced them as much as over here? Yes. I mean, they pretty much were more prepared for it because they've been dealing with bootlegging. So they never really relied too much on the actual physical sales of CDs. And uh, they always kind of knew that music was, could be used more of a tool for advertising and promotion. And so it's not that they encouraged bootlegging and everything, but streaming kind of falls in line with what they feel music is useful for. Mm-hmm. Meaning it streaming is useful for like creating artists that will create the demand for the live performance. And the live performance over there is not so much I mean the ticket sales are interesting over there because they're used largely as a advertising tool. Mm. Meaning that uh, corporations like seven eleven will buy half the tickets for the the stadium and give them to their their clients as gifts you know so they have to call half the people that go to shows we're given the ticket for free as an advertising gift i don't know if that if that's good for the artist because you don't have a dedicated audience at that point i it they seem to make it work but as far as streaming they're actually probably farther ahead of, uh, of the curve than we are at the moment hmm. because they're actually paying their artists when they're streaming. In fact, they're in a bidding war because the government said there's only eight companies that can actually do the streaming. So they have to make a deal. Every one of those streaming companies has to make a deal with the artist directly Wow. or the management. Okay, that's different. Here, it's kind of like, if you're Taylor Swift, you're going to get paid. But if you're not Taylor Swift, you may not get paid. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, well, it's done by market share. So, yeah, someone that has a lot of streams is going to get paid more. That's the sad part of it. But that's ultimately the way it works. And again, we're talking about 300 million people here, three and a half billion people over there. Yeah. So the streaming market over there is much more substantial than here. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Let's talk about the way you work for a little bit. You're totally in the box now, right? Uh, yeah, I think most of us are. Yeah. I think Dave Pensado, Dave Pensado said it more accurately. The war between analog and digital was fought and digital won. You know? Yeah. It's... it's and I always felt, anyway, no matter how good the audio was, creativity will always trump audio. You know, it's just like it. it whatever I can do to, to facilitate the artist getting what they hear in their head, that's what I'm supposed to do. And it seems to be easier with digital than with analog these days. Do you use any upward gear when you mix? Yeah, that's for my joy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, I do, 
I have, I have, you know, the Manly, I have the Millennia, outboard EQs and, and, and everything. The Bricasti, TC Electronics. Uh, I mean, to me, I could be wrong. And I am wrong a lot. But um, the, the reverb, the outboard reverbs are still substantially better, I feel, than in the box. You know? Yeah. I don't know whether it's just the processing power that it, the reverbs take up. But they seem to just hang around to sustain a whole lot better when it's actually got its own little reverb unit, you know, with its own processor. Yeah. And you're only dealing with audio at that point. But, uh, yeah, I do. I do. Do you have any favorite plugins? That's funny because I used to be such a plug-in junkie. I mean, it was like, and then I ended up going, you know, every, every, 30 hours I spend on a mix, how much of it was just playing around with different plugins. Yeah. And I wasn't really mixing. So I've kind of gone the opposite direction the last several, last couple of years. And I mentally am trying to go back to like mixing on a board in a way. Okay. Meaning that SSL, I was one of the early users of Duende, um, the SSL plugin. Yeah, when it was outboard, and then they, they they make great plugin, and they've improved on it greatly the last couple of years. So now I basically go, and of course UAD, all their plugins are getting better and better and better. I mean, bottom line is everything digital just keeps getting better and better and better. Yeah. Okay. At some point, you got to go. Okay, when will I stop playing around with all this stuff and get back to what I'm supposed to do, which is mix? Yeah. So I'm kind of approaching mixes by going, okay, I put the Duende across all the drums. Okay, all of them. Two reasons. One, delay compensation. It just seems to tighten everything up when they all have the same delay compensation. Mm, makes sense. And phase shift and everything seems to be more coherent. And then I make more like I'm mixing on the console. It's like, when you're mixing on an SSL, you you don't just mix the one channel. You mix the channel or the room EQ because you're kind of like trying to weave everything in together. And it's just been better for me in that I'm not focusing on the plug-in. I'm focusing on the mixing, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I of course, it's Duende, the SSL, Fab Filter, mm. which, you know, they... They keep upgrading and everything, which is okay, except it costs an upgrade, you know. And uh, a few waves plugins that you can't beat, you know. It's mm -hmm. like the Rev Five or the uh, SPX ninety, if you remember those. Yeah, sure. They weren't phenomenal, but they were very useful. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what other plugin do do I use a lot. There are some Avid plugins that I hadn't used before, but I'm starting to use now. Didn't know how good they were until I actually used them. So, But it, mentally, I'm kind of like, if I start, find myself focusing on a plugin, I write down what plugin it was, and I'll come back to it the next morning and play with it. But I don't, I try not to lose the mix by getting lost in plugins. Yeah. That's good advice because it's easy enough to have happen. Definitely. We're engineers. We like to play around with stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like 
Yeah. We want to play with it. Last question, Craig. What's the best piece of business advice that you've either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? I'm a horrible businessman. Okay. I loved running Air LA and everything, but it comes down to it that I'm motivated by the music, you know, and it's what make, makes me good, but it also is what makes me a horrible businessman. I think the best business advice, and I've yet to been able to follow it, is find a good manager. Mm. <laughs> Somebody who understands money and who understands your value. Because most audio engineers I know don't really know what their value is. Yeah, you know, they, they love doing this. They love being around musicians. They love making music. So they tend not to value their time as much as they should. You know, so my best advice is find that partner, you know, the guy or girlfriend who's a good businessman who values your time more than you do and values what you do creatively and, uh, you know, helps you make a living at this. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.